Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I'm pretty positive all of y'all have heard this story before, but I won't tell it again anyway about the about the Baptist and Presbyterian and Methodist pastors who all went fishing one day. And uh, the Methodist and the Presbyterian were used to fishing together, and they invited the Baptist pastor, Baptist preacher, to come along with them. And so they were out on the water, and they'd been out there for a little bit, and the Methodist pastor said, Dad, come on, I forgot my canteen on the shore. He jumps out of the boat and runs on the shore on top of the water. Gets his canteen, comes back, and gets in the boat. And of course, you know, the Methodist doesn't seem, uh, was it the Presbyterian, whichever one, right? So the, the Baptist is impressed, right? But the Methodist and the Presbyterian, yeah, they're not impressed. But, so then the other one says, oh man, I've run out of bait. He jumps out of the boat, runs across the water, gets his bait, comes back, gets in the boat. And the Baptist guy just does not want to be undone. And so he thinks of some reason. He said, oh, man, I forgot my Bible up on shore. He jumps out of the boat and he sinks like a rock, right? And uh, he gets back out and he says, oh, I, I, I got to try that again. He does it again. He sinks again. And this time while he's under, the, the Presbyterian and the Methodist say, man, do you think we should tell him where the rocks are? <laughs> you probably know this morning if you've read ahead and if you're a regular part of our family, you know that we're studying the Gospel of John and we've come to a a part in our story where Jesus is actually going to walk on water and he's not going to need any rocks. Today we're going to look at a miracle that Jesus performed. And I want to tell you here, I want to remind you anyway, of what John is doing, lest you forget. John is writing this book. We know this because at the very end of it, he'll say why he wrote it. But he says, I'm writing this Jesus did many signs that, uh, in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John says, I am writing this because I, I want you to believe. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm, I'm, There's so many more miracles, so many more signs, so many more things that I could say about Jesus that I haven't recorded here, but I've recorded these because I want you to believe and that by believing, by faith, you might might have life in his name. There are seven miracles in the book of John. This is the fifth one. The first one was the changing of water into wine. You remember that, right, at the wedding feast in Cana. Not too many people were aware of that, just the servants and maybe his disciples. They were the only ones that knew of that miracle at that moment. The second one was the king's man's son. Remember him? He was from Capernaum, and he goes to Cana and says to Jesus, you've got to come back with me. You've got to come back with me. And and Jesus doesn't go back with him. He said, I'm not going to go back with you. You know, we don't need to have signs. We We don't need to have this external thing. Just go. Your son is healed. And his son was healed at the very moment Jesus said. The third miracle was the healing of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. You'll remember that. Again, Jesus performs that miracle and then sneaks out. People don't even know. The guy says, when he's asked, who healed you? He said, I don't know. He snuck out. It wasn't a very public miracle. 
The fourth miracle that John records for us is the one from last Sunday. It was the feeding of 5,000. And in this particular case, that was a very public miracle, the, the most public of the ones so far that, that, G, uh, that John is recording for us. And that brings us to the fifth miracle this morning. And the text that I'm choosing for us today is just verses 14 through verse 21, which is pretty much just the miracle itself. Let's, uh, let's go back to the end of the story, back to verse 14. If you have your Bibles, John 6, 14. It says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people and the people recognize something. Here is a man who can heal our diseases and feed our stomachs. Here's a man who can take care of the basic two needs that, that we have in life. Let's make him king. And, uh, and they want to make him king, but he doesn't capitalize on that. In fact, he, he kind of goes just the opposite way. Look at verse 16. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the Sea of Capernaum to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred, and because a strong wind was blowing, because a strong wind was blowing, period, sorry. Then, when they had rowed about three or five miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now I need to say, here at the onset, I don't really understand why John leaves so much out of this miracle. There are so many other things that happened in this very story. So if we combine the three gospel accounts that tell the story, we get a much fuller, broader, detailed picture of what happened. And so I'd, I'd like to do that for just a few moments. I would like to paint the bigger picture. What happened that day and that evening? So Jesus sends his disciples away. They don't just go get in the boat. He actually makes them leave, as we'll see. It says in verse 23 of Matthew's, I think it's chapter 14, he says, And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself. No, that's not the verse I wanted. Anyway, he, he actually goes and sends them away, as we'll see. He sends them away himself, and then he goes up on the mountaintop to pray. Now, the question is, in my mind, do they object? Do they say, how are you going to get to Capernaum, Jesus? If we leave you here by yourself, how are you going to get there? I can't imagine they didn't ask some of those questions. But he stays behind, and the story tells us that he goes up on the mountainside. John doesn't tell us why. Mark and Matthew do. He goes up there to pray. Here's the verse I started to read you, verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. So as time moves on, his disciples are actually rowing across the Sea of Galilee, but a, so a storm comes up. It's gotten dark. Verse 24 of Matthew's account says, but the, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So the, the storm that came up, the winds are actually blowing against the boat, and so they're really having a hard time. Mark adds in his account, Mark 6, 47, now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land, and then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. So how did Jesus see them? It doesn't tell us, right? He doesn't have x-ray vision that I know of. 
He, it's nighttime. They're four miles out. So he's not seeing them with physical eyes. God is evidently giving him a vision of what's happening to them. John's gospel tells us they're three to four miles out into the Sea of Galilee, which is, by the way, is five miles across. So they're, they're three-fifths or four-fifths of the way across the Sea of Galilee. Both Matthew and Mark tell us... Um, the time, the time when Jesus came to them. It was the fourth watch of the night when they came to, to them walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. So Jesus came out there either at 3 in the morning or sometime closer to 6, and they're rowing against the sea, I mean, against the wind. When he gets alongside of them, they are afraid. And wouldn't you, wouldn't you be, right? So, I mean, what is this thing coming? And by the way, did he glow? Why, why did, why did, how did they see him? You know, it's night, it's stormy. I, I doubt the moon is out. How do they see him? Is he glowing? I don't think so. I, this, is, this is just Jimmy's speculation, but I have a feeling that he's coming to them closer to dawn. The light's probably starting to break, and that's how they see him, and they're very much afraid of what they're seeing. Here's what Mark says in verse, chapter 6, verse 49. He says, And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Maybe this would lend itself to the glow in part, right? They thought it was a ghost. Matthew adds even more detail to the story that, that Mark leaves out and that John leaves out. So Matthew says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command to me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And to me, that's one of the more riveting stories in the New Testament. Maybe, maybe you think the same way. And it's embedded in this night. It's embedded in this story of Jesus walking on water. When Jesus and Peter get into the boat, what happens is immediately the winds and the waves cease. Mark says, verse 51, when he went up into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond uh, measure and marveled. Matthew says in verse 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. And then Mark adds one more caveat at the end of his account, and he says this, they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Now Mark, if you remember, Mark is is basically Peter's reflections. So Mark's gospel, most, most people believe, most scholars believe that, that Mark's gospel is really being, because Mark wasn't there, so how does he know it? It's really Peter's recounting of what happened uh, during those days when Jesus walked the earth and Peter was a part of that band of 12 men that followed him everywhere he went. Most people believe Mark's writing Peter's words. And so uh, Peter is, is not trying to say, I don't think, or Mark is not trying to say, that their hearts are hard towards the Lord. I think he's saying that they just have not contemplated what happened earlier in the afternoon before. Because had they contemplated that, then they would not have been astonished by what has just, uh, just happened. So I asked myself this week as I studied, I asked and I said, why does, Mar why does John leave out so many details in this fascinating story? 
Doesn't it seem kind of strange to you? I'm writing these signs so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. So why, why does he leave out all these fascinating details in the story? Peter walking on water, the wind dying down, all that kind of stuff. And, and here's the answer that I came up with. And again, just, just Jimmy speculating, so understand that. But, but I think the reason why John doesn't spend much time on this miracle and basically overlooks a lot of it, maybe one of two reasons. One is that the thing that concerns him the most are the discourses that Jesus gave. John's gospel is really mostly all about the things that Jesus taught. You remember that when he healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda, the, the, the next rest of the chapter is really all about what Jesus is saying and teaching in regard to the pushback that he's getting from the Pharisees. In, in this particular incident, he feeds 5,000, and the rest of John chapter 6 is going to be Jesus talking about that incident with the people that have followed him and the people that have questions. And so really, this miracle is sort of just a bridge to get us between what happened that evening and what's going to happen the next day when, when he's going to teach. It could have been John's the last to write. It could be he thought, I don't need to mention all those details because Matthew and Mark do. So maybe that's why he didn't mention them. What I'd like to do with the rest of our time this morning is I'd like to share with you some spiritual lessons that, as I read, I think are illustrated in this really, in this true, real story. So here's a true, real story. Here's a, here's a true event. And, but I think it, it is illustrative of, of some spiritual realities that are true in our life. So I, I've got a number of them. And, uh, and I'm going to just run through them and see if this story doesn't illustrate them at some level. And I, I want to start with Jesus. I want to start with two lessons that I see illustrated in, in Jesus' life for us. Here, here's the first one. Do, do not be driven by need or opportunity, but only by the will of God. In other words, don't, don't let opportunity be the way you always and only discern what is God's will for your life. In context, John is telling us that after he feeds the 5,000 men and maybe many, many more people than that, after he feeds them, Jesus discerns that the crowd is, is thinking about taking him and forcefully making him king. But Jesus sends the crowd away, sends his disciples on over to Capernaum. He dismisses the crowd, and he chooses instead to get alone by himself. Now, now listen, this would be a great opportunity, wouldn't it? Jesus is, is I mean, he's there. He's the Messiah. He's the king, right? And here the people are, are wanting to take him and make him king, but he doesn't recognize opportunity as equal with the will of God. In fact, he knows the will of God is not for them to make him king. You know, many have said that Jesus came to offer himself as an earthly king and the Jews rejected him. You know, this passage seems to say exactly the opposite. It seems to say that they wanted to make him their earthly king. They wanted to make him, you know, their, their Messiah king, but he would have, he would have none, none, none of it. So the lesson that I want you to see illustrated in Jesus' life for us is that just because you have opportunity, that doesn't mean it's God's will for you. And you should seek the Lord like our Savior did with regard to what is God's will for you, even in the face of opportunity. 
Now, I'm not saying that opportunity is, is never the will of God. I'm not, I'm not trying to push the pendulum to the other side. I'm simply saying that all too often when opportunity shows up in our life, we assume that's God's will for us. We assume this is something God's done. So just because you get the big job offer with more money, just because everybody wants to give you a certain promotion at work, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what God wants you to do. Ann and I had the opportunity to go to Southwestern years ago, and then when I look back on it in retrospect, I don't think that's what God wanted me to do, but it was an opportunity, and, and I stepped into it. So here, here's, here's my point. We tend to think that every good thing that gets offered to us is God's green light to move forward in it. I think Jesus illustrates for us in how he handled such an incredible opportunity to become the king, right? People wanted to make him king by force. He didn't see that as the will of God, and we shouldn't either. Here's my second lesson from Jesus. Amidst the multitude and the men, don't forget the mountainside. Jesus invested three years in two things, in men and multitudes. So for three years, he invested in 70 men, and in three years, he invested pouring his life I'm not sure exactly how it was different, but he poured his life into 12 men differently than he did the 70, but he poured his life into 70 men at some level. But he also, during that three years, taught the crowds time after time after time. He was engaging the multitudes, right? Uh, even, even when he was looking for some downtime, he prioritized them over himself so that in this very story, you remember they're trying to get away. And, and he puts his plans on hold to go and, and spend time with this huge multitude. So Jesus, in three years, seemed to, at, le at some level, prioritize men and multitudes. But in the middle of men and masses, he never forgot the mountainside. And I know I'm speaking metaphorically, so you're probably, if you're not following me and tracking with me, what are you saying by the mountainside? Well, here's what I'm saying by the mountainside. And Jesus, John doesn't say it, but Matthew and Mark do. He stayed behind. To go up on the mountainside to pray, to talk with the Father. That's, that's what he did. It's characteristic of Jesus in his humanity that his relationship with God was his priority. And, and throughout the four Gospels, we see that. Let me give you, let me give you a couple of, uh, of, of illustrations of this. Or let me, let me talk about this in two different ways, okay? One, one of them, one of them I, I think really needs redress in my own life. But here's two thoughts about this thing of Jesus spending time with, with God. One, he walked with God all the time. In other words, there's a sense in which Jesus was always connected to the Father and always considered himself in fellowship with the Father. So when he raises Lazarus from the dead, this is what he says out loud. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I, I knew that you always hear me, because, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, he's saying, you know, God, you and I have been talking about this, but I'm saying this out loud so that everybody will know what you and I have been talking about and they'll know that you're doing it. In other words, Jesus... I mean, he practiced the presence of God, the Father. He was with the Father always in communion with the Father. I think that would be illustrated also. Remember when the lady with the bleeding issue touches his garment and he whips around immediately and says, who touched me? Well, that has to be that God was, you know, showing him that, all right? So that's one thing. But here's the part of my life that I think needs some redress. And, and, it's, and it's this. Jesus would pull aside purposefully 
specifically, privately, to spend time just one-on-one talking to God. So in Mark 1.35, we read, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to the secluded place, and was praying there. That's exactly what we're reading here in John 6. He went up on a mountain to get alone to do one thing, to talk with God by himself. Here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to say to us. You know, it's, it's good for us to think that we're walking with God all throughout the day, talking with him. I think I've convinced myself that that's me. I'm just walking with God all the time. But what I was convicted by this week as I read this is that here's the son of God who, you know, he's, he's the PhD in church leadership, even, even beyond Paul, right? So here, here's our savior walking all the time with Jesus, never out of step with Jesus, but yet he still feels the need to get alone, pull aside, be just by himself, him, him and God. I think we need to do that too. So how about you? Do you do that? Do you have a purposeful, undistracted time where it's just you and God and you just, you're sitting down maybe with your Bible or just, just talking with him? Do you have that specific time? If not, you need to make sure. I think we need to follow Jesus' example. Now, does it have to be every day? I would think so, but, you know, I don't know. But I still believe that Jesus is, the lesson here is that in the midst of all of life, don't forget the mountainside. Don't forget the time to pull aside just you and the Lord together. Now some lessons from the disciples. Here's, here's, here's one that we've talked about many times. Obedience to Jesus doesn't necessarily mean smooth sailing for us. Following Jesus doesn't mean that everything is wonderful in your life from here on out. And in this incident, this story illustrates this because Jesus makes those disciples do what they do and they go right into a storm. So here's the verse. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And I didn't write that down whether that's Matthew or Mark's account. But Jesus makes his disciples do that. Jesus sends them out and it doesn't take any time at all. They're in the middle of a storm. And here's what I want you to realize. They're going five miles. They left before dark, 6 p.m., It's the third watch, or the fourth watch, 3 a.m. in the morning. If it's just 6 to 3, it's been nine hours. They've been out on the Sea of Galilee for nine hours rowing, and they're not making much headway. You get it? I mean, so Jesus, I don't, I wonder if it crossed their mind. Why did Jesus make us do this? Why, why, why did he send us out into this? And here's, here's my point. You know, our obedience to Jesus may just lead us into a really big storm in our life. And and the storm may be there because we're actually following Jesus. TV preachers, and I mean, I'm not trying to pick on them, but if you just watch them, the the promise they make is that, that there is supposed to be no suffering, no loss, no storm in your lives. And that's just contrary to what Jesus says. It's contrary to what Jesus illustrates in this story, but it's contrary, I think, even to what he said, because he told us we're going to struggle in life. We're going to have, we're going to have tribulations in life. So I just, want to, I just want to remind us all this morning that just because we follow Jesus doesn't guarantee somehow this pain-free, easy life that has no problems. In fact, just the opposite seems to be the case. Seriously, not for us as Americans, but for the rest of the world throughout all the centuries that have gone by since Jesus came and went, the church has suffered. That that was one of the points of the Insanity of God book, if you read it. 
If you read what, uh, what Nick's um, conclusion is, it seems to be that for most of the, the centuries and for most of the world, following Jesus didn't bring you a life of ease. It brought you struggle and trial and persecution and suffering. I think this story illustrates that for us. Another lesson. Jesus is all about testing you. And I can't prove this categorically, but in, in the first part, remember when he fed the 5,000? We know he tested them there. It says so clearly. I'm suggesting that this is a test uh, for two reasons. Number one, I'm suggesting it's a, te- a test because Jesus waited so long to go to them. I think it's a test because he waited so long to go to them. But I also think it may have been a test because of what Mark records in verse 52 when he says, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. I mean, I think Jesus is testing them to see what they will do in this particular situation. They obviously didn't get the point of the loaves. And you say, well, what is the point of the loaves? Well, here's the point of the loaves. The point of the loaves is that Jesus is able when we can't. The point of the loaves is that Jesus is God. The point of the loaves is that we need to look to Jesus when we're in the midst of something we can't take care of. The point of the loaves is that we need to trust in Jesus. I think the Bible is pretty clear. Would you agree with this? That God is not averse to testing you and me. That it's not something that he he says, oh, I'm not going to do that. Just the opposite. It seems like he does that quite a bit. So when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray like this. Father, lead us not into temptation. That word temptation is the same word for testing. Lead us not into testing. We could translate that word that way. Father, lead us not into testing. Why would Jesus teach us to pray that way? I think because he knows that we don't do very good on test. And tests are hard. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance has its perfect results so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. You know, uh, if you've hung around Dick Lane any amount of time at all, you know that he is always saying that these things that happen in our life, they're, they're a test, a spiritual test in our life. Can I make this suggestion? Uh, can I make a suggestion that anytime you find yourself with a difficulty, a problem, a hurt, a headwind, it's a test. It's a test. And I think this story illustrates that Jesus is not averse to testing us. The question is, am I going to pass the test? Am I going to stand in the test? And by the way, just so you know what passing looks like, here's what it looks like. Passing these tests, whatever it is, looks like looking to Jesus. It looks like trusting Jesus. It looks like not despairing. It looks like being faithful even in the midst of really tough stuff. Here's my next lesson. It's easy to miss God when you're not looking for him. So Jesus comes to them walking on the water and they don't recognize him. They think it's a ghost. Well, why didn't they recognize him? Well, because they're not looking for him. They're not expecting him to walk out there. If they were expecting him to walk out there, they wouldn't have thought it was a ghost. They would say, oh, he's here now. So they're not looking for him. Now, I doubt when he left, he said, hey, by the way, a little bit later on tonight, I'm going to come walking out to you on the water. I don't think he told them that. So they're not thinking that way. They lacked imagination of all that God could do, might do, even would do on that night. So please don't misunderstand. I wouldn't have been looking for Jesus either. The the lesson here, 
however, is that we should be looking for Jesus. We should be looking for him at work in our lives in the storms. We should be looking for him because he said numerous times throughout his book that he is not asleep, that he is not unaware of what's going on around us. So when you are in the storm, the lesson here is to be looking for him. To be looking for what he's doing in the storm and what he might do beyond the storm. Look for him. I mean, he's there. He hasn't abandoned us. That's the problem. I mean, that's the promise. So if, if, if you're in the midst of it, look for what God is doing. When Shep died, when Shep died, I wasn't necessarily looking for it, but I saw it. I saw what God did. Can I tell you three things that God did in the first few days? One of them was, I thought Katie and Ethan were up in Philly. And I was, Carlos, our sheriff, was going to take me to Philly. I, I had gone home. He had gone home to change his clothes so he could come back and get me. And he was going to take me to Philly. And, in that, and, and I had no idea Katie and Ethan were not up there. And so I'm driving home, and Ann calls me, and um, I don't tell her that Shep's been killed. I don't know how I didn't. I didn't let on, but I didn't tell her that. But in that conversation, on the way home, she tells me that Ethan and Katie are not up there. Had I not had that conversation with Ann, I would have gone to Philly thinking that they're up there and not, not, not knowing otherwise. So it wasn't very long after. I saw that as God at work in this terrible situation. I saw that as God at work. That, that Sunday night when the pastor calls me to and says, just he calls me, I don't call him, he calls me, and he says, I want to tell you something. Shep had a relationship with God, and he was a committed part of our church. So when he tells me that, I saw that as God's grace. I saw that as God at work in this horrible situation. I don't know that I saw it at the time, but it was just, it was in that same weekend when we got cocooned in Philly as a family, I saw that as God at work in the midst of it. Now here's my point. My point is, whatever storm you're in, God's working, and if we're not looking for Him, we're not going to see Him. So here's what I want to say to you. When you're in a storm, look for Jesus because He's working there. He's always working there. Don't miss Him. Here's another lesson. God is looking for men and women who are willing to get out of the boat. And I can't prove this, and afterwards you're welcome to come up and say to me, I should have skipped this, but, but I, I think this story illustrates that God is looking for men and women to get out of the boat, who are willing to get out of the boat. So here's Peter. He asked the Lord, he says, I want to get out of the boat, and I want to walk to you. And Jesus says, come. Now, something in me says... And again, I'm speculating. I own it. I recognize it. But something in me says Jesus was proud of that. He was excited by that. He was pleased with Peter's desire to get out of the boat. And I say that because he doesn't say, no, Peter, stay in the boat. He says, no, you come to me, Peter. I think Jesus was, was really pleased with Peter's desire to get out of the boat. It took faith. It took him trusting Jesus to imagine himself walking on the water. I mean, so he had to imagine himself, hey, I can do that. I can walk on water if Jesus wants me to. He had to imagine that. I wonder how, and I know I'm speaking so metaphorically in so many ways this morning, but I wonder how we limit ourselves 
Because we're like the other disciples and not willing to get out of the boat. We're, we're, we're wanting to stay in the safety of the boat and not willing to even, you know, do what Peter did. So what do I mean practically? What do I mean practically by this? Here's what I mean practically. Have you ever had a desire in your heart to serve the Lord in one way or another, but, but to do it, you really, really have to put yourself out there. You have to put yourself out there emotionally, or maybe you have to put yourself out there financially, and to do so is scary. You know, and, and the reason it's scary is, will it work? Is this gonna really, is this gonna really float? Am I really gonna be able to walk through this? Can I do it? Now notice that Peter doesn't just jump out of the boat and start running to Jesus. He says, can I come to you? So I'm not suggesting that we get out of the boat and just start running without checking with Jesus first. That's not what I'm saying. But, but he still had to get out of the boat. He still had to really have this idea and then trust Jesus to get out of the boat. I think God is excited when we're willing to step out of our comfort zones, our boats, and willing to really trust him for, for, things, trust him for things that only he can do. And, and man, wouldn't it be neat? I've lived my life too much in the boat. I've recognized it my entire life. I live too much in the boat. Our church needs to not live in the boat so much. We, 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 need, to, we need to get his permission, but then we need to step out and we need to really say, Lord, let me come to you on the water. Let me come to you on the water. Again, I might be wrong, but I think it pleased the Lord that Peter stepped out of that boat. Here's my next lesson, and it's tied to that one. But fear will sink us every time. Fear is going to sink us. Now, the other guys were so afraid, they wouldn't even get out of the boat. But Peter wasn't. He got out of the boat. But when Peter got out of the boat, and he starts walking, and so picture this. It's stormy, remember? So he's walking on the water, and the water, I, I imagine this, is just slapping up against him, getting him wet. I mean, the, the waves are kind of maybe washing all up against his waist. I mean, he's walking on, I don't even know how that is. How do you walk on water? You know, especially water that's moving like this. How do you, how do, you do I don't know. He's walking on it. He's getting wet. And, and somewhere as he's approaching Jesus, he starts thinking about all that's going on around him. And the Bible says that he got afraid. Fear came over him. And when the fear came over him, God let him sink. God let him sink. And I don't know if it was a vicious cycle. The more he sank, the more afraid he became, and the more God let him sink. I'm not sure how that works. Fear is what keeps us bound when it comes to ministry. Fear is what wraps us up and renders us useless to God because we're afraid. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of, of maybe how it might make us look. We're, I don't know what we're afraid of, but listen to what God says about fear. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are worth more than many sparrows. Do not fear, little flock, for it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. One more. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. 
Who, what can man do to me? Now fear is a real, real emotion. Peter was afraid. But it's not the emotion that's wrong. It's the emotion that keeps us from doing what God wants us to do. It's when we let the emotion drive our actions and our attitudes and our thinking. That's when fear becomes wrong. And that's when fear sinks us, when, when we let it overtake us. I can't do this or I can't do that, you know, because I'm afraid. What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? Beloved, listen, we can't live our lives. We can't, I can't live my personal life. You can't live your personal life. We can't live as a family on all the what ifs. What if this? What if that? What if this? I mean, we live our lives based on God's desires, not on our fears of the what ifs. Y'all remember, Jess? Remember, remember how, I think it was you were on this trip too, but how, remember how Ebola almost sank us when we were going on a mission trip? Y'all remember that? We're going to Congo, 13 of us, I think, and Ebola hit on the other side of the Congo, a thousand miles away. And fear of what might be might be, almost kept us from going on that mission trip to the Congo. Now you're saying, and I know what you're saying in your heart, I know, what about safety, Jimmy? What about common sense? I'm not saying that we leave those totally behind. In, in the letter to the Thessalonians, or in Acts chapter 17, Paul has stirred up a hornet's nest. They're coming for him. He escapes in the middle of the night. He doesn't stay there. He uses common sense. He gets out of town. He knows it's the, the danger level is so high that he needs to leave, leave. But what I'm saying is that far too many of us run at the slightest hint of danger or cost. We, we run at the slightest hint. Here's our, John, our own John Bulls running into the, he's running into the fire. He's not afraid. Physical Jesus is just feet from Peter, but he lets his fear overtake him. Let's stop letting fear control us and sink us. And the last thing, and I'm done. Nothing is impossible for Jesus. Now, as the story goes, Jesus gets in the boat, and both the winds and the waves die down. And I mean, not, not 10 minutes later, not a half an hour later, but the winds die down immediately. I've never been in the eye of a hurricane, but I've, I've read about it. I even did some reading about it to make sure I was telling you all the truth. But when the eye of the, the, of the hurricane comes in, the winds go from 110 miles an hour to 15 miles an hour and just right away as the, as the eye wall comes in. And I imagine that that's how it was that night for those disciples. Jesus and Peter get in, get in the boat, and as soon as they get in the boat, the winds die down. And the waves, of course, with not being driven by any winds, the waves begin, I mean, they just begin to, they begin to dissipate. They begin to stop. And before long, it's really, really calm. Now here's, here's I think, the lesson that is illustrated in this for us. And, and I called it, nothing is impossible for Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. No storm can live if Jesus says die. Nothing, nothing happens unless God is at least willing, permitting it to happen because our God is sovereign over all things. Now I want to define sovereignty for us because it's a definition that we Christians don't agree on. But sovereignty in my mind means that there is nothing that God can
cannot do that God wants to do. I'm not saying God is controlling all the minutiae. I am saying, however, that in his sovereignty, there is nothing, nothing that happens that God had to go, oops, I didn't see that one coming, or oops, I, you know, I, I couldn't do anything about that. You know, nothing like that. I may be wrong about this, but I think this is the biggest lesson the disciples needed to learn about Jesus. And, and Jesus keeps reinforcing it. And here's the lesson. I'm God. I'm not a man just like you guys. I, I am the, I'm fully the creator. I'm the one who created all things. And so there is nothing that is impossible for me because of who I am. The lesson Jesus is trying to tell them is that they need to trust him because he is Lord. When the storm died down with such exactness, you know, Mark says they marveled and, and all, but Matthew specifically says they worshipped him and they called him the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. So this last lesson, again, it's metaphorical in my application of it, but I'd like you to know that there's not a storm in your life that Jesus can't calm. There's not a storm in your life that Jesus is somehow not able to fix, change, remove. There's not one. There's not one. It's nothing. Now, this is where it gets hard for me because I don't mean that Jesus will calm your storm instantly. I don't even mean that Jesus is going to calm your storm anytime soon. They've been in the storm for how many hours? We don't know how many hours. How many hours did they've been out on the sea? How many hours? At least nine. Maybe as many as, as 11 hours. Because I think they're getting near dawn and they're getting near the other side. But Jesus waits all night. So I'm not saying that your storm's going to end anytime soon. But still, there's not a storm he can't handle. There's not a storm that somehow is outside of God's, God's control, God's ability to do something about. I'm not even saying that God, your storm, is not going to overtake your life and capsize your boat so that you don't survive. I'm not even willing to say that. I know we always want God to show up at the right minute, right, the last minute and, and save us. But he doesn't always do that. My friend Dan Baer is in a hospital somewhere, I think, in Raleigh, and he's got uh, an aortic, abdominal aortic aneurysm. And, uh, and, and I've learned that for the entire length of his aorta, it's, it's got the aneurysm in it. And, and everything I understand, I mean, this is a storm that most people don't come back from. Don't get the, and you, the storm capsizes your boat, right? But you know what? That... Though that might be true, that's not always true. God can, God can change this storm for my friend. And that's what I'm praying for. But here's the bottom line. Because God can, I need to entrust myself to him. Can you entrust yourself to God in the middle of your storms? Can you entrust yourself to this God who is your creator who has actually maybe sent you into this storm, can you trust him and love him and follow him and serve him and, and still be his in the midst of all of that? I hope so. Let me go back through my list again. If you'd put the next slide up there for me. Here's, here's the lessons that I, I saw illustrated. And again, I, I may have stretched some of them, but here they are. Let me read them for you again. 
Do not be driven by need or opportunity, but only by the will of God. Amidst the multitude and the men, don't forget the mountainside. Obedience to Jesus doesn't necessarily mean smooth sailing for us. Sometimes Jesus sends us out into a storm. Jesus is all about testing you. It's easy to miss God when you aren't looking for Him. And God is looking for men and women who are willing to get out of the boat. Fear will sink us every time. And nothing is impossible for Jesus. Here's what I'd like you to do for just a moment as we end. Would you just bow your head? We've got just a couple of minutes. And, and just, I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe one of these lessons as I was talking, the Spirit of God was connecting it to your heart. And He was saying, you need to look for me in the storm you're in. You seem to have forgotten that I'm, I'm, I'm there. Maybe you need to look for Jesus in the storm. Maybe, maybe God might speak to you about the mountainside and, and, and you've kind of neglected the mountainside and you need, to, you need to rediscover the mountainside. I don't know, maybe you've got this big, huge opportunity in front of you and you're wondering whether this is the will of God or not. It very well may be. That opportunity very well may be a door that God has opened up, but not necessarily. So are you willing to seek His will on that? Anyway, you have the list of lessons that I noted. You talk to God about whatever He spoke to your heart about. Father, I imagine that every one of us wish that Jesus was here with us physically this morning and, and He would come to us walking, you know, uh, on the troubled, troubled waters of our storms and we could just walk with Him and sit down and talk with You and see You and hear Your voice. I know we all would long to have had that privilege, but... Um, but we have a, a greater privilege. You said yourself, Jesus, that it was good for you to go away, that, that the Spirit might come and you dwell within each one of us. And, and you help us, Lord, and you help us. Father, I pray that you'll take these lessons and the ones that, need, that, that I need to apply to my life and the ones that my brothers and sisters need to apply to their lives, that, Lord, by your Spirit this week, you'd reinforce that, you'd encourage us with that, that you'd help us make strides in changing whatever we need to change or do to, uh, you know, to, to walk in keeping with your will. Lord, help us not to be afraid. Help us to step out and trust you in the things that you're prompting and, and prodding in our hearts. Lord, help us to step out and trust you in those things. Help us to be looking for you. Lord, this week, may we, just, may we live in such a way that we impact the community around us. Lord, may, may the world around us be different because we follow you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.